Craft Beer Radio coverage of Savor, an American craft beer and food experience, Salon Number One, Cheese and Beer, Two Arts That Taste Great Together, presented by Garrett Oliver, Brewmaster, Brooklyn Brewery, and the author of The Brewmaster's Table, sponsored by GreatBrewers.com. beautiful room this is and to see you here finally on this weekend. Um, You are at a historic event. Uh, Savor is an American craft beer and food experience for many, many reasons. Um, One of them is our speakers. My name is Julia Herz. I'm with the Brewers Association. I'm proud to be with the Brewers Association who has brought you this, uh, this event and we hope you really have an experience. This is not a beer festival. This is something that shows us all that there's interest out there with beer and food, absolutely. And the reason that we're having um, Savor right now is because it's American Craft Beer Week. Um, Yeehaw on that. And did anyone see the Colbert Report? He literally featured American Craft Beer Week, which is a huge thing for American craft brewers. So outside in this great hall, you have 48 American craft brewers to taste tonight, maybe even tomorrow if you're coming again. And we really do hope you enjoy yourselves, and thank you. Of the 1,449 breweries in the United States right now, 1,420 of those are craft brewers. So the majority of brewers in the United States are the smaller producing, independently owned, traditionally practicing brewers. They are the passionate innovators, the mavericks, the ones who have taken beer styles and turned them on their ears, pushed the envelopes, and created new things like double IPA and American brown ale, and done some amazing, amazing things. So we're just really glad that they're going to get to show off their stuff this week. Um, I want to let you know a little housekeeping that you are going to be tasting today. Garrett's got six beers and six amazing cheeses. What you're using are are cups, and and granted, um, this weekend is about elevating the image of beer, but these cups, I assure you, are odorless and tasteless. These are what we use during judging at the Great American Beer Festival, these cups, as well as at the World Beer Cup, which is the Olympics of beer. So you're in very good hands with your cupware. Um, I want to remind you to turn your cell phones off if you don't mind. And if you do have to leave for any reason, I know you entered through this door, but if you can leave through the back of the room, that would be appreciated. Um, We have a a sponsor here from uh, Great Brewers. Is anybody from greatbrewers.com in the room? We want to thank them for their support, as well as Reyes Beverage Group, who has been incredible to make Savor an absolute reality. And so what I want to do right now is introduce the gentleman that has come to speak to you. Um, I, uh, anybody go to the Brickskeller? You're all D.C. people. Raise your hand. When I was 18 years old, I got to see a uh, dinner when you were with the Manhattan Brewing Company. And I still have the original glassware that Garrett gave. This gentleman has influenced so many people in the beer world, and now so many people in the beer and food world. I don't think there's many that come close to what he has done. Um, He's authored an incredible book. Um, Has anybody seen Garrett's book, The Brewmaster's Table? I think when that book was published, there was no turning back. The knowledge contained in that book really 
will be referred to again and again. It's going to take a lot of effort by somebody else to try and top what's in that book. So it is our pleasure today to thank him for coming, as well as uh, my pleasure today to introduce Mr. Garrett Oliver. The sort of room I had always hoped for. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's funny. You know, it's uh, good of her to mention. I mean, what a wonderful introduction, except for the part about her being 18 when I did the first, uh, you know. I mean, <laughs> if I ever wanted to feel old, that would definitely do it for me. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'll take on my elder statesman role, hopefully gracefully. Um, what we're doing here today is, uh, is, is pretty close to my heart, because over the years, I've done about 500 beer dinners and tastings in nine countries. And to this day, my favorite type of tasting, which I do as often as I can, is beer versus wine with cheese against top sommeliers in front of an audience, Iron Chef style. The number one thing that I love about it is that I always win. <laughs> and uh, it's also fun to watch the befuddlement of you know, the sommeliers as I sort of lop one arm off and then the other arm comes off and then finally come with uh, the coup de grace because everyone comes into the room and they expect the wine is the best accompaniment for cheese. And when I was working on the brewmaster's table, one thing kept cropping up over and over again as kind of a theme when I went to read wine books to see what did they have to say about cheese? What did they have to say about flavor? How did they talk about these things? One thing that, uh, that sort of spun out was that, generally speaking, they weren't terribly fond of wine as an accompaniment for cheese. And when you think about it, most of the time when you have wine and cheese together, you know, where do you have them? Parties, weddings, art openings. Not really situations where you're going to sit down and try to pair them. Often at dinner you have whatever the wine was that was on the table left over and then the cheese course comes and you have whatever the wine is that you have with the cheese and don't pay much attention to what's actually going on. But the fact of the matter is that there are a number of reasons why beer is the better accompaniment for cheese. Um, and we're going to kind of run through those uh, this evening. Cheese is an odd thing in our sort of food life because we're getting more and more familiar with uh, great cheeses you know, through not only small local cheese shops and big uh, uh, shops doing a nice job like Whole Foods. Uh, we're seeing people get familiar with what cheese is again. But for a long time, we forgot. And it's part of what I call the matrix of you know, the American food world. You walk into the supermarket, and there's something really kind of wrong, and you don't know what it is. Everything's some spooky. And the problem, you see, generally speaking, when you go through the supermarket, is that much of the stuff that you're looking at is not food. It says that it's food, but it isn't food. And you know, we can put it this way. Who here has ever made a loaf of bread at home? How long does a loaf of bread stay fresh? A day? Two days? Okay, I want you to think about this. A loaf of bread does not stay fresh in a bag for two weeks. The thing in the bag at the supermarket is not bread. It doesn't look like bread. It doesn't smell like bread. It doesn't taste like bread. It doesn't act like bread. It is not made from what bread is made from. And it is not made how bread is made. Bread has four or five ingredients, each of which a five-year-old child can pronounce. We all know what it is. It does not have 40 ingredients. 
Bread does not stick to the roof of your mouth when you eat it. You can't roll bread into a little marble and flick it across the room. Bread actually tastes good. The supermarket version of white bread doesn't taste good. Not only does it not taste good, the scary part, the scariest part, it's not even supposed to taste good. What it is is a food facsimile. Frankenbread. And we ended up with the same version of cheese. Anything you can put between two pieces of plastic, walk around with it in your pocket for three weeks, take it out and eat it, that's not cheese. So you've seen, this, the, you know, you've seen the commercials. Our slices are 70% milk. Cheese is 100% milk. You know, what is the other 30% of that slice that you can't call cheese legally? It melts so beautifully, and it's so yellow. And that's what it does. You know, and the so-called bread holds on to your meat and keeps it from falling onto the floor and holds on to mayonnaise. But what we're looking at here is the real version of cheese and the real version of beer, because I feel like we got a beer facsimile as well, beer that doesn't look, smell, or taste like beer and pretty much tastes like water. It takes tremendous skill to make, but not much joy in drinking. So what we're doing is bringing back those flavors. We're going to put some of them together here tonight. And what you have on your, uh, uh, on your plate, and I'll give you the names of the cheeses. I thought we'd have a list, but we'll run through. And what we're going to start off with is a goat cheese called... Uh, uh, called Cypress Grove Humboldt Fog. But we're going to start first with the beer. Um, the Humboldt Fog is sort of uh, the cakey, very sort of cakey, white-looking one. But let's not eat that first, because we want to get to the beer first. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to taste the beer, we're going to taste the cheese, and then we're going to taste them together. And what you're always looking for is something which is more than some of its parts, where you can taste these things separately, and you can understand how they're working separately, and then you put them together and you say, hey, something nice really happened there. And whenever you're tasting a beer, it's really very much the same uh, way that you're tasting wine. You're going to get it around the glass first, and the first thing you're going to do is smell it, because uh, your nose actually takes in most of the sensation that you call taste. Your tongue only perceives five sensations, sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and umami, the sort of fifth sense of the Japanese refer to as kind of deliciousness. Um, if you eat foie gras, you understand umami very well. Um, so you get this around the glass, and this is Allagash White, um, winner of many awards in the Belgian uh, wheat beer category. About 50% raw wheat and 50% barley. Spiced with curacao, orange peel, and coriander, which is traditional for this style of beer. Very, very pale, which is why uh, the style is known as white beer. Um, obviously, it's not white, but neither is white wine. And when you get your nose in there, you can definitely smell the spices. And the spices kind of came to the brewing world uh, at a time when hops were not the only spice in beer. Many different things were used. And uh, the Dutch, uh, when they were exploring the Spice Islands, they brought all these various spices back, and they ended up not only in the food, but in the beer as well. So now let's taste it. Very light on the palate, a slight acidity uh, there, which you always get from wheat. Uh, a little bit of a, a lilt of fruit through the center. And a uh, very clean finish. Very light on bitterness, as most wheat beers are. And this would be about 5% by volume. And now we're going to move along to our cheese. And actually, this is what the cheese looks like. 
I'm afraid by the time I got to most of them, they had been cut into little pieces, but uh, this one, there was some left over. So this is a wheel of uh, Cypress Grove, Humboldt Fog. It has a layer through the center of uh, black ash, which is traditionally used in a lot of different cheeses, sometimes to separate the morning and evening milkings, sometimes just as a, a visual effect. Um, it can also be used to dampen down uh, layers of, uh, of acidity in certain cheeses. And this is a relatively young one, and how you can tell is that around the edges here, underneath this white uh, uh, mold of, uh, rind of mold, rather, it's just starting to get a little bit soft. When this gets older, and sometimes you'll see it, that layer becomes kind of soupy, and then eventually, when it starts really getting older, the whole center of a piece like this would just kind of slide out because it would remain cakey while the bit right underneath the rind uh, would become gooey. And with uh, something like this, if you have a bit of the rind, you can definitely eat the rind. It's quite edible. It has a nice flavor to it. And what's happening when you're having a goat cheese like this is that the molds that are on the outside, as they're growing, they basically inform the flavor of the cheese because otherwise you have the fresh goat cheeses that you're probably already familiar with. They're fairly simple, fairly tangy, kind of citrusy. But this takes on that kind of uh, leafy, moldy uh, sort of uh, flavor, earthy character, which makes the cheese a lot more complex. This is made by Mary Keene and her daughter uh, outside of uh, San Francisco uh, in, uh, uh, in California, widely considered one of the best aged goat cheeses uh, outside of France. And did, did, now, does everyone feel they've successfully found it? No. Okay. Look, look for the whitest cheese you've got uh, on the plate. The, you know, that's, uh, that's yours there. It should look kind of crumbly. See, normally what we do, and I should have made sure that we did it, is we'll put a toothpick in, uh, well, it'll be, it'll be up on, they did put it on a cracker, yes. So it's definitely not uh, a, a cube. I'll walk through with it. You should be able to see it. You've got it there. Sometimes they've kind of uh, made into a little cake. That, that's it. Everybody kind of feel like they got it? Okay. Um, now, from that point, remember where that cheese uh, is or was, because we're going to go clockwise around the plate. And that's how, hopefully, we're going to identify the rest of our cheeses. So let's taste that. Now, sometimes when it's soupy, you really need a cracker. Personally, I don't, I don't go so much for the cracker thing. I mean, if you can pick it up with your fingers... I think, you know, cheese is a very tactile thing. You want to kind of see what the cheese actually feels like. Well, if you've got a napkin, you'll be fine. Very tight paste, almost peanut butter-like. The texture on the palate kind of sticks to the roof of your tongue, the uh, roof of your mouth in a way. And you let it break up a little bit. And once you've got the flavor of it, now let's taste it with the beer. One of the reasons why beer is a better accompaniment for cheese is because what you find often when cheese matching is that when you have a cheese like this that's very mouth-coating, wine has a tendency to essentially bounce off. The cheese physically coats your tongue and doesn't allow the wine to get to your taste buds. And beer has a, a wonderful property to it, carbonation, scrubbing bubbles. And they physically will lift that fat 
off your palate and involve the cheese and the beer together um, and have them blend into, uh, into one kind of unified whole on your palate. And I've seen it happen many times in the competitions where you have flavors of wine and cheese that might work fine, but the wine simply can't basically get to the cheese. And this is one reason why uh, champagne is often used in these tastings, because champagne at least has the same advantages in that area that uh, the beer does. What I like about this pairing is that the, the two acidities, I think, really work nicely together. Um, in a lot of cases, people will do something along the lines of a, an Alsace-Gewürztraminer or something uh, in the direction uh, of wine. Wine characteristics for cheese pairing usually have more to do with contrast than with harmony, where beer, I think, is much better at doing, does the contrast anyway with its bitterness, with carbonation, and with fruit characteristics, but also can do harmony, and I think that these are very harmonious flavors. I mean, essentially, at the end of the day, um, you are starting with a, uh, uh, you're starting with basically a grass uh, in the case of both the beer and the cheese. And I know that seems a bit of a stretch. There's a cow or a sheep or a goat somewhere in between when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the cheese. But essentially, beer comes from grass, either wheat uh, or barley, and the cheese is coming from grass and other plants that are being eaten by the animal. I think that these really form part of the affinity that you have going on there. Now, one of my favorite things to do for summertime, and I know this sounds weird, but trust me, it's really good, is I make a, a, an omelet of sautéed Granny Smith apples. You just peel them and sauté them in butter. Use some of this uh, 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 Humboldt Fog cheese and just make a simple omelet. A little bit of cracked pepper. 10.30, late enough. Belgian-style wheat beer. <laughs> it's brunch. 10.30, by 10.30, it's brunch. It's not breakfast anymore, it's brunch. I think a really nice combination, especially as it goes into the finish. I think that works really well. Okay, so as you come around uh, to the right, you have another one on a cracker, which uh, has sort of a, basically a white paste, uh, sort of smeared there. That's our Briat Savarin, B-R-I-L-L-A-T-S-A-V-A-R-I-N, uh, named after the great French gastronomer. Now, there wasn't much left of the Briat by the time I got to the poor guy, but you can see the remain there of what the out of, outside of the mold looked like. Again, sort of a, a white mold with a sort of creamy paste on the inside. The style is referred to as triple creme, and the reason for this is because the way that this cheese is made is very much like brie. Um, it's a soft curd cheese to which, of course, they're starting with milk, and then they'll add cream to it, which brings the fat content of the cheese up to a luscious 75 to 80%. And let's face it, what cheese is really about is fat. That's, why, that's one reason we love it, the combination of fat, salt, and then everything else that's going on with, it, with, it, with a cheese like this. And briat, when it's young, is just simply creamy, uh, as it, uh, and beautifully creamy. As it gets older, it gets a little bit of a, a, a bite and a funk to it. And one of the fun things about doing these tastings is that when you come to do a tasting, you never know exactly what state you're going to find the cheese in. 
So there's always uh, the, the, the tight wire act of, uh, of seeing uh, how exactly this is going to go. It's fun when you're doing the competitions, too, because the level of age of the cheese may hand an advantage either to me or to the sommelier. Usually to me. <laughs> All right, well, let's taste the beer. And this beer is called Brooklyn Local One. And we're serving it out on the floor if you want to ch check out more of it later. Um, this is a Belgian-inspired beer. Uh, it's 9%, so quite strong. Uh, it's actually, technically speaking, very dry, though it may taste slightly sweet when you first taste it. Um, it's a beer that uh, is made by Brooklyn Brewery, um, so it's uh, close to my heart. And we make it by 100% bottle re-fermentation. What this means is that it's made uh, exactly the same way that champagne is made. Uh, the only difference being that there's no degorgement. The degorgement is the removal of the yeast, which is done in champagne. Uh, we don't do that in beer because we like the yeast, which is actually very good for you. So uh, that whole method is called the méthode champenoise when they're making champagne. And this is made by the méthode brooklynaise. And... <laughs> If you, saw, if you saw the bottle going around, you know, some people say, hey, look, you know, these beers, they're in champagne bottles. Here's something I want everybody to remember. Champagne is in a beer bottle. That was, that was always a beer bottle. It was a beer bottle before anybody ever made champagne. And the whole idea of champagne was to take wine and make it kind of like beer, you know, to give it carbonation, to give it liveliness, etc. And they, the same monks who had been making the beer for hundreds of years took the same bottle and the same technique and applied it to the wine. Later, they came up with the dégorgement, um, thereby taking out uh, some of the things. But even then, they want some of the yeast character often uh, in those wines and will leave the wine sitting on the yeast to get some of the flavor and then clear uh, the yeast out over time. Uh, we hold on to it. So let's get that around the uh, glass. And in the aroma, I think you can pick up uh, uh, not only the malt, but also some, uh, some spicy characteristics, a little bit of kind of honey and tobacco character. And those are really being created not only by the yeast strain, but by the fact that we also add some raw sugar from Mauritius, which gives you that kind of rum tobacco kind of thing. We want to have a little bit of funkiness uh, there. You're cut off. <laughs> and let's taste it. Now, this is a good example of what I refer to um, as false sweetness. When you taste the beer at first, you might say it tastes kind of sweet. If you're a wine person, again, I'll go back to alsace gewürztraminer It's a very good example. Almost no residual sugar, but an impression of sweetness. And that is brought on by fruit characteristics in a beer. It's also brought on by alcohol. Alcohol is sweet when you taste it. If you think about bourbon, for example, bourbon often tastes really sweet, but of course it doesn't have any sugar in it. You might get a little bit of sugar out of the wood, but not enough for you to actually taste. So that's, an, that's a kind of impression that you get uh, on your palate, and many things can, can cause it. Um, but this is a technically very dry beer with about 1.5% residual sugar. And let's taste that cheese. This one, you probably do need the cracker, unless you want to you know, use your, uh, your little fork there. Wonderful stuff just kind of melts on your tongue. Now, how I can tell that this particular uh, cheese is pretty well aged is you wait for it, and here comes that kind of almost a burn. There's a peppery burning 
uh, kind of sensation. You know, and I rarely see it in this kind of condition. We'll see whether it actually gives the beer uh, any problems because although I like that characteristic, um, it can be tough on beverages. But I think the beer can handle it because it's got some peppery qualities of its own, so let's taste it. Actually, I think it, it actually worked pretty well. Um, now, I think that if that cheese had gone a little bit further, probably another week, I would have been strong enough that you know, the beer might have had uh, a hard time with it. But as I said, that's always the fun of seeing these things. The beauty of, especially a fully bottle-re-fermented beer, um, a, a, a real cheese as well, is that they're alive. They're things that are, that are, that are moving and are still evolving uh, over time. So that was actually really nice to taste. Now we're coming to our third cheese, which should be in the form of a little cube, a very sort of pale yellow cube. Um, and the beer that we're going to be having with it is from uh, the Trogues Brewery in Pennsylvania. Now this is the only beer we're going to be tasting twice. They want to keep us down to five beers for logistical reasons, and I think that this beer will work with, uh, well with two of the cheeses. So this uh, style of beer is Doublebach. And this is a style of beer which was originally made by monks in Germany. It was intended to get uh, the monks through the 40 days of Lent, where they had to go without solid food. So they wanted something that was almost like liquid bread. Had some residual sugar to it, definitely. Um, was very hearty. These days in Germany, this is something that people pair up all the time with all the wonderful pork dishes uh, that, uh, that Germany is so well known for. And if you get it around the glass and smell it, you definitely get an aroma there of malt. So this is a lager beer, and it's the only lager that we're serving this evening. Lager beers are beers that are fermented cold by a different species of yeast than makes, uh, uh, than makes ales. And what really characterizes lager beers is their very direct ingredient flavors. So when you taste lager beer, you don't tend to have fruity, spicy character. You taste malt and you taste hops. You can get some other things, some influences from, especially sort of some sulfur compounds, which can be kind of nice uh, in lager fermentations, but what you're not getting is, say, bananas and cloves and, and, and things like that that you might get from other yeasts. So let's taste the beer. Very round, very soft, malty, nice toffee-ish flavors. A really nice example uh, of that style. I think you can kind of see how uh, pork is go uh, could work with that. And oddly, with this cheese, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do with this cheese is to break it open. Just take that, that cube and just break it in half, and then just smell it where you broke it open. That is the smell of sheep's milk. And you might recognize it if you ever got caught in a rainstorm in a wool coat. That's kind of what it smells like. And the reason why it smells like that is that that is the flavor and aroma of lanolin. And the lanolin, which is the oil in the wool coat, in the wool, it's uh, obviously, you see it in a lot of uh, uh, skincare products. Um, it obviously goes through into the, into the milk of the sheep. Um, you get that aroma and flavor in lamb because, of course, the lamb is uh, at first consuming uh, the mother's milk. So it's a very distinctive flavor 
uh, an aroma which is often described as being warm and nutty. And I think that uh, what you'll see when you taste it with, uh, with the beer uh, in a minute is that the nutty kind of characteristics that you can get from malt uh, work really well against those characteristics in the cheese. So let's taste the cheese. What I love about this cheese is it starts modestly, you know, and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting, and then it kind of goes boom. You get it around your mouth, it opens up, and you get all these wonderfully grassy flavors, a nice hit of uh, salt, and that nuttiness throughout. So let's try these two together. And I think that these two are really almost perfectly suited for each other. Um, one almost disappears into the other. You could almost imagine that they're being made by the same person so that they're actually going, they're intended to go together. Um, if you taste them together and just kind of let them blend in your mouth, it's kind of hard to see at a moment where the beer ends and the cheese begins. And I think that's kind of nice. It's something different, you know, than what a, a wine would do in the same uh, situation. It's nice to have that here, because I have to admit, I'm, I'm, my tongue is still somewhat under the influence of the, the, uh, the Briot Savarin. It still, uh, still have some of that peppery quality hanging around. Uh, it's called, oh, sorry, that's, that's a very good question. What cheese was it? <laughs> now, usually when I do these, there's like a sheet on the table, so everybody has it. Uh, uh, it's called Osau Irati. Uh, O-S-S-A-U-A-R-A-T-Y. Um, it's a Brebi cheese from the Pyrenees. Um, and so it's a distinct type of, uh, of a sheep's milk cheese. Um, there's, uh, there are very few that I would say are really in this class, but there is one made in the United States by Vermont Butter and Cheese called Vermont Shepherd, um, which is made very much in this style, which is also absolutely wonderful and takes on that distinctly sheepy uh, quality, and you really have the depth of the sheep's milk character going on there. Very much sort of a mountain farmer's uh, uh, kind, of, uh, kind of cheese in origin. Uh, the beer is called Troganator from the Trog, uh, Trog Brewing Company. And uh, that's T-R-O-E-G-E-N-A-T-O-R. Now, when you see the suffix ator at the end of a beer, that is your, basically, that tells you that's going to be a double box. The double box, generally speaking, in Germany will have that suffix. So the original was called Salvator by Polaner. And then you have Optimator, Fortimator, Celebrator, uh, and on and on. So when you see that, you know that generally you're, uh, you're going to have a beer which is malty. It's going to be a double bock. Usually they're about 7.5%, so they're a bit strong. Um, but very nice beers across the board for cheese. So coming around uh, to your next cheese, what most of you are going to have is a little kind of lump. Uh, it probably isn't cut into a particular square, but it, but it might be. Um, not, certainly not nearly so cleanly cut as, uh, as the other ones. And I wish I could find a, a wheel of this, because it, uh, it doesn't look much like this little piece here. 
But the, uh, the style of cheese is washed rind, and I always like to have some washed rind cheeses. And generally speaking, these are known as the stinky cheeses. Now, the reason why they're thought of as stinky cheeses uh, is because the washing of the rind encourages the growth of certain microflora, particularly one called bee linens, uh, which gives you uh, that funky characteristic that you know from those cheeses. Now, this particular one isn't really all that funky. I don't think I've ever seen it quite this young. So it's young and tangy, and when you taste it, you'll see that it does have some of that funkiness to it, but not right up front. The beer that we're having with it, uh, this is uh, a French country ale by the Two Brothers Brewing Company, uh, the Abel Brothers, and they're actually serving this uh, out front over here. And this is uh, a beer inspired by, they are actually two brothers uh, who, uh, uh, who spent a lot of time in France. They were inspired by the Bière de Garde style, which is the indigenous style of northern France in the area around Norpas de Calais. And people often obviously don't think about France when it comes to brewing, but France is a very old brewing tradition, and particularly that part of the country. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, a lot of hop fields growing nearby in areas around Ypres, uh, etc. And this is a really nice example of the style. Now, uh, relatively uh, dark in color, sort of an amber color. So we have some caramelized malts going on there. And if you get it around the glass and smell it, there's a very distinctive character that comes from the yeasts that are used in that part of the world. And the yeasts are, are used not only by the brewers, but also by the bread makers and they just kind of move through, if you like, the environment uh, of that area. And they have a distinctly mushroomy, slightly earthy herbal character with a note perhaps of anise seed or fennel in the background. If you taste the beer on the palate, you have firm bitterness, but certainly you know, by no means uh, uh, huge, some distinct residual sugar, and a nice kind of, uh, uh, sort of, I don't know, um, it doesn't sound nice, but leaf under a rock quality. You know, slightly, you know, that when you're going through a, 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 a forest in autumn and you're kicking up leaves and you get that nice, uh, that, that nice aroma going on, there's always a little bit of that in the background of a nice beer to guard. And it's one thing that I feel helps these uh, beers work well against the funkier cheeses. Now, usually you see... Uh, a cheese like this, and it may be in a stage where it's almost melty, uh, melting and gooey. This is really sort of young and tangy and very firm. Um, the, uh, the cheese itself is called Hooligan. It's made by, uh, in Connecticut by Cato Corner Creamery. Um, and what they were really looking to do was to uh, emulate some of the great wash rind cheeses of France uh, that developed that funkiness uh, over time. So Cheeses like Epoise, in, in Italy you would have Telegio, back to France you have Pavin. You know, one time I had a cheese like this, and it was about, I don't know, about that big, four or five inches across, and it came in this cool little wooden basket, and I said, you know, my, my cellar is going to be a perfect place to put a cheese like this, the right level of humidity, the right temperature, 50 some odd degrees, um, and it was kind of funky, but you know, I didn't want to put it in the fridge and kind of kill it, so I wanted it to evolve, and... I went down the basement, and my, my basement is like 800 square feet, so it's a good size. And I put this little cheese on a box in the back of the basement, and I went to work. And I got home from the brewery, and as I was putting my key into the front door, I was sort of like, 
and I open the door up, and the entire house, I'm talking about three stories of house, this one little cheese had funked up my entire house. That is a powerful thing. Uh, so, and that's kind of, in a way, what Rosh Ryan Cheese is about when it starts to get, uh, when it starts to get really funky. Now, what would they do? Well, they, they'll wash the rinds of the cheeses with all sorts of things to encourage the growth of these microflora. It could be anything from, in this case, it's buttermilk. So they'll keep washing the surface of the cheese in buttermilk. Sometimes they'll wash it in beer. Sometimes they'll wash it in grappa or mark or a wine. Uh, we actually make a, uh, uh, a beer for, uh, for Thomas Keller at the French Laundry, uh, and they're planning to have um, the Jasper Hill people in Vermont make a cheese and they're now for them, and they're going to actually take the beer that we, ha- that we make for them and wash the cheese with, uh, with, uh, with their beer, which I think is kind of cool. Um, and Jasper Hill are great people to be able to work with. Now let's taste this cheese. As you get it around your mouth, you start to get a bit of the funk there. But usually, once it's older, you can smell it more on the outside. And actually, what happens is that the funkiness eventually is almost more on the exterior than it is on the interior. You almost smell it more than you taste it. Here, you're not smelling it so much, but you are tasting it definitely. Uh, very well developed. And let's taste it with the beer. What I always find very interesting is in the interaction between a beer and a cheese or a beer and any kind of food, one is going to completely change the other. So you take a beer that started off a minute ago tasting really relatively sweet and put it up against a very sort of pasty, salty, funky cheese, and now the beer tastes dry. And so it's not always sweet versus, uh, versus bitter. The beer does dry out, but um, I think importantly, actually, I believe that is, we're in the wrong position there. That is, well, we have to turn. Oh, okay, we have the last one already there? Okay. I say for a minute, I thought we, now on the plate, we actually are reversed, and that's why I was a little bit worried. Um, your last cheese is actually going to be the blue cheese. And so you're going to go past the blue cheese, and your next cheese is going to be the sort of cube. Thank you. Did I get it? <laughs> this uh, somewhat darker cube is what we're going to be going for next, just so you know. And uh, now for this cheese, we're going back to, I said we had one beer we're going to repeat, and that was the uh, Troganator. Uh, from Trogues, we're now going to be pairing that up again with uh, that next cheese, which is the Pleasant Ridge Reserve from Wisconsin. So just to remind ourselves, even though we tasted this earlier, let's taste that beer again. Again, the maltiness of the double bock. Now that we're going, though, to a cow's milk cheese. And this is made pretty broadly in the Gruyere style. Uh, this cheese has won uh, the American Cheese Society's uh, best cheese made in the United States 
won that award uh, several times, um, made by Mike Gingrich uh, at, at uh, the Uplands Cheese Company. And if you actually if you break this open, what's interesting is just the way that it uh, the way that it fractures. You get a real uh, uh, sense of the texture of the cheese, somewhat springy, a little bit rubbery, but it breaks with a certain kind of uh, uh, of fracture to it that kind of gives away where the texture is going to be, and a beautifully milky smell. I mean, it's just uh, uh, such a gorgeous aroma. So let's taste this cheese. I love this cheese. Wonderfully grassy, and it has a really interesting texture, like a fine grain kind of texture. As it gets a little bit older, sometimes it'll get little crunchy crystals of salt. You know, will start to uh, condense inside of it. So if you get a little crunch, that's what that is. And you get the flavor of the pastures. You get spring flowers. You get grass. It's a really intensely concentrated flavor of milk. The funny thing about looking at all these various types of cheeses, and we've barely covered them very widely, is that um, cheese originally, of course, the whole idea of cheese is to hold on to milk. That's really all it was originally for. I mean, you, you milk the cow, and you had maybe 12 hours, um, maybe a little bit longer you know, in wintertime, before that milk was going to spoil, how can we hold on to all that food value? And the way that you would do that is by making it into cheese so that it could be stored. And from that, you get all the wonderful cheeses that we have in the world. I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was de Gaulle who said, uh, you know, how can, you, how can I govern a country with 350 cheeses? I guess you could say the same thing in the South about barbecue. And now let's taste these two together. What's interesting is how we saw the way the Osawarati work with this, and this engages this cheese beautifully too, but at a somewhat different kind of level. It's got a little bit, a little bit less of the sort of grip of the uh, of the sort of pure harmony, if you like, and a little bit of uh, a, a blend between harmony, but also because of its intense saltiness, uh, as well as the other flavors going on, a little bit of the counterpoint between the saltiness and the sweetness of the beer, you know, which I think is really nice. And our last pairing is one that I would love to say. Well, I would love to see if, say if you like it. Uh, I would love to say was something which I sort of came up with out of the blue, but essentially it was something that kind of just happened to me. So I'm at this tasting, and there are a number of people doing tastings before me. The caviar lady is just wrapping up her presentation, and of course she's done well. She has caviar. Um, and I have been talking to the organizers of this tasting, and I said, okay, let's do this. Either we'll do... Black chocolate stout, which is the beer that we're about to serve, with chocolate truffles, or we will do a barley wine with the Colston Bassett Stilton, which is the cheese that we have here, one or the other. Well, what happened is somehow these got mixed up, and I ended up with black chocolate stout, and I say, where's my truffles? They say, we have Stilton. And I was like, oh no, oh no, oh no, what am I going to do? <laughs> 
there's a hundred people here. I'm going to die. And, you know, I start sweating and, you know, everything's uh, going wrong. It's like, you know, the, the, it's like you're watching somebody die on stage, uh, you know, at a, at a comedy or something. And then I tasted the two together and it was like, da-da. And then I walked out there and acted like this is what I meant to, you know, I brought you a wonderful new taste sensation today. <laughs> but what I really found that I hadn't seen before in the cheese was that the cheese has its own chocolate notes. And I had known this cheese for a long time, but I never really recognized that. And we'll kind of get back to that in a minute. Let's start with the beer. Um, the beer is another one, again, close to my heart. Uh, this is from Brooklyn. It's called Brooklyn Black Chocolate Stout. The style of beer is Imperial Stout. Um, this is quite a strong beer at 10.5% by volume. Um, as many of you probably know, Imperial Stout was a style of beer which was originally made for just one person, and that was Catherine the Great of Russia. Uh, who had come to visit her cousins, who were the English royal family. And uh, she went home she, and said, sent a letter saying, love that stout beer, send me some. They sent her some, and it spoiled on the sea voyage. And Catherine was not a person to be disappointed. So they made sure that next time they brewed it so that it would last, and they did that by making it much, much stronger, adding more hops, which acted as a preservative as well as making the beer bitterer. So the style is very intense. It's called black chocolate stout, but it doesn't actually have any chocolate in it. It has a lot of a malt called chocolate malt, which is a roasting of malt, and a number of other dark malts that give it a dark uh, chocolate and coffee character. So if you smell it, you definitely get that sort of 75, 80% you know, cacao chocolate sort of uh, character that you might get from Valrona or Calibo or something like that. And let's taste it. Kind of soft, round, um, a lot of chocolatey flavors through the center, quite a bit more residual sugar uh, than the other beers. Um, I think it kind of uh, hides its 10.5%, at least at the moment, dangerously well. And for our cheese, you have what pe many people call the king of cheeses, Colston Bassett Stilton. And I know that this is unfair of me and marks me out as perhaps an intolerant person, but I decided a while back that people who don't like Stilton are bad people. <laughs> Can't come to my house. So Stilton is a, uh, is a cow's milk cheese, uh, which has the development of the penicillium mold. And this is not really apparent when the cheese is first made. The cheese is pierced uh, with holes which will allow air to get to the interior of the cheese, and it's only when in contact with oxygen that this mold starts to spore, and that's what you're seeing in the bluing. Now, when it's young, and uh, this, of course, is from England, this particular one from the Neal's Yard Dairy, um, when it's young, it's going to be uh, almost white with little flecks of blue through it. I can see from the level of bluing in this that this is a bit older. It's going to retain some of its butteriness, but it's also going to have a distinct, sharp, uh, tang to it uh, as it's taken on uh, more and more age. So, you know, these will run anywhere from very, very mild to being, uh, you know, quite powerful and funky. And I think we're at the tangy, funky end, I would guess. So let's uh, taste that. Now, as you taste it, kind of interesting, look and see if you find a chocolate character. And if you don't get it yet, see whether you get it when you taste it with the beer. Oh, that's good. That's a beautiful cheese. 
It actually isn't that tangy. It's very, very salty, as it always is. Retains a beautiful, smooth, buttery quality. And let's taste it with the beer. Pretty interesting, isn't it? The, I think that you have you know, a couple of things going on there. You have the chocolatey quality that the cheese has, really linking up with uh, uh, chocolatey qualities of the beer. You have that intense saltiness of the Stilton up against the sweetness of the beer, which actually kind of gets uh, uh, accentuated a little bit. The beer actually turns out tasting maybe even a little bit sweeter than it did before because of the way that this particular cheese is working on your palate. Now, normally on the wine side, you're going to serve a really, really sweet wine uh, uh, at the end of a meal. They'll do port or whatever else. And the wine person usually figures that they have this hands down, but I often win this round because this is a more interesting pairing uh, than most of the things that you're going to uh, be putting it with on the sweet wine side. Not that they're not perfectly fine there, but again, we're, in this case, we're going more for harmony and less for that very simple contrast of taking something sweet and putting it up against you know, something salty. There's something in the beer that's really latching on to uh, what's going on in the cheese. So I think in only these you know, few six pairings, you know, we get a little sense for the sorts of things that you can do. And of course, you know, these actually are cheeses that you can find almost at any decent cheese shop. So just to run down them again so that uh, you can take them with you, uh, we had uh, um, uh, Cypress Grove, Humboldt Fog, uh, Briat Savaram, Hooligan from Cato Corner. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, in, in between, number three was the uh, Osau Irati, one of my favorite cheeses. Number four was the Hooligan from, uh, from Cato Corner. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Pleasant Ridge Reserve from Upland's Cheese Company. Uh, in Wisconsin, and finally Colston Bassett Stilton uh, from England. And, you know, as you look to kind of uh, develop your own interest in cheese or further your own interest in cheese, or maybe you already have an interest in cheese but haven't really thought about beer with it, um, I think here's a great opportunity to have something on the table on a regular basis that really can uh, work wonders with cheese and do a lot of fun stuff. So I want to thank everybody for coming out this evening. I know we have a couple of minutes for questions. Uh, Julie will tell me if we have a couple of minutes for questions. Okay, I got a couple of minutes for questions. So if anybody has any questions, uh, we'll, you can see whether I can answer them. You can just shout them out. I'm sure I can hear you. Velveeta. Um, not so much. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think you can say that Velveeta is even 70% milk. You know, it's like probably 20% milk or something. Uh, now, a lot of these things that are, caught, that are people think of as cheese or processed cheese food, technically speaking, and I'm not naming any particular names, but technically speaking, what they are is, you have one guess, edible plastic. I kid you not. The first edible plastic was Crisco. Got some at home? Maybe you might want to toss that out. 
edible plastic. I know the guys who work on this uh, for the military. They're trying to get something that you can put in your pocket for a month, take it out and eat it, you know, and that you'll kind of think is cheese or something. Um, and basically, they're using exactly the same technology. So, uh, scary Frankenfood. These cheeses are very available. Uh, they're going to be a little bit seasonal. Uh, Humboldt Fog is, uh, you'll see uh, in a lot of places, probably the most uh, popular, serious uh, goat cheese in America. Um, you'll see it used on salads, often like beet salads and things like that. We still got five minutes, so she said. Um, uh, Briat Savarin is, uh, you know, is a standard. Uh, Colston Bassett as well. Yeah, these you're going to find Osawarati. So if you go to a Whole Foods, for example, or a good local cheese shop, you should be able to find all of these. Uh, the question was, what kind of uh, beer do you pair with a Pecorino? Well, Pecorino is a sheep's milk cheese. It tends to be quite sharp. Um, it depends on how long it's aged. I tend to go over something with a, a fair amount of residual sugar, like a barley wine. And if it gets really, really sharp, then it gets tough to pair. But um, like Pecorino de Fossa and stuff like that. But the younger Pecorinos, I think, like the Osaurati, are really nice with barley wines, double box, and brown ales. Well, mild cheeses like farmer's cheeses you know, are, are pretty easy to pair across the board because they're going to row in pretty well with uh, most of the things that you do because what you're trying to avoid is cheeses have a lot of sharp edges on them, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of things that can react to what you're tasting to. And farmer's cheeses don't tend to have that. So they'll almost take on the character of whatever it is you're eating. So they're actually pretty easy to pair. Uh, Burana. I'm trying to remember uh, Burana. Is that, is, that, uh, is that one of the ones that's uh, made with uh, nettles? I, I'm, I'm, you know, my, well, I, I know the, uh, there's, a, there's a Burana that comes almost like... Um, it's a buffalo, you know, buffalo milk cheese that kind of has a tie around the end, and that's the only kind of burrata that uh, you know, that I know. So I'm, that, you probably stumped me because uh, you know, that, they're, they're the oh, Pirano, that one I just don't know. <laughs> um, I think actually Brooklyn he was asking. We've had a lot of strong beers tonight. How about beers of more regular strength? Well, first of all, we started with a beer of regular strength with the Allagash, pretty light on the palate. Um, a beer like Brooklyn Lager, which is sort of American-style uh, American amber ale, I think works really well with, uh, with aged farmhouse cheddars. You know, because it has that... I like the way the sharpness of the hops works with uh, uh, the kind of bitterness, if you like, of the cheese, the big sort of snap that, uh, that aged cheddars have. I think that works... Uh, that can work quite well. But the beers didn't have to be strong tonight, and on average they were maybe a little bit stronger than average. But the um, um, the French country ale from Two Brothers was is not particularly strong. Uh, we did go at the end for something which was uh, pretty huge, but then again we had a, a pretty huge cheese to work against. I know that they need the room in a few minutes. I want to thank everybody for coming out. Um, I'm going to answer. I'm sure I can answer a few more questions as they're changing the room over. And uh, have a great time here at Saver. Thanks, and we hope you enjoyed this Craft Beer Radio coverage of Saver. To find more, visit www.craftbeerradio.com/saver. 
Crafty Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit www.craftbeerradio.com for more details. Running crazy